Forge family. Let's uh, gather around the Word of God. Uh, we were in chapter uh, 12, Zechariah, our last time together. And that re represented a big shift from the judgment that God was going to pour out on Israel in chapter 11. So in chapter 12, he steps in to bless and protect Judah, and Jerusalem, and all of Israel. The nations that will come up to devour Jerusalem are going to be sent reeling away by the Lord. And he sets out to use Judah as mighty warriors against those nations. On that day, when the Lord defends the city, wherein he has chosen his name to dwell forever, it says he will pour out an anointing on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a flow of grace and supplication. When this anointing is poured out, it comes with, with uh, some conviction, some insight, because immediately uh, those people recognize that they recognize the one that was they pierced. And they're, they're caught up with mourning and repentance. They recognize he, it was Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Messiah and King. They will mourn and repent, and clan by clan and family by family, they're going to stand and, and go face to face with the Lord, as it were. So this isn't going to be a big civic gathering to kind of go, oh, Lord, we repent together. This is individually, and, and they will weep over their rejected Messiah and the fact that they sort of approved and engineered his death. So let's pray. Lord God, this day we too uh, know that when you appear in the clouds that's prophesied in Revelation chapter 1, we too are going to weep and, and repent. Lord, thank you for your great forgiveness and your call to us as sons and daughters of the King. Lord, we may be the generation that will be alive when these words spoken 500 years before Christ um, come to pass. So just because we have your grace extended to us, Lord, we are not released from the command to obey you. Pour out on us an anointing by Holy Spirit that will cause us to cry out to you, Lord, for more grace and more trust as you lead us into your arms. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, that was my prayer for us. Let's just take a minute and say, ask the Lord for that anointing, if you will, that grace and trust, so that we become fully obedient to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. All right, let's turn on over to Zechariah chapter 13. Now, at verse 1, it says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Now, recall the anointing on, that, on the house of David and, and Jerusalem that was grace and supplication. And this links back to chapter 12, verse 10. This fountain that's announced here, this, it's an artesian, ever-flowing source that will wash clean the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and cleanse them of their sin and their impurity. Now today, we as Gentiles and believing Jews, 
We're, we're first fruits of that. We're receiving that outpouring today. <clears throat> now, we know that his blood is the highest surfactant, for it will dissolve away all sin and guilt, all, all shame and all filth, all chains and all bondage. But in that day, the Lord uh, says over the house of David and over Jerusalem, that, that outpouring is going to wash them clean. Now here, the Lord uses two words. Uh, there's sin and there's impurity. You know, the first word is you have just walked away. You've walked off the path. Okay? And it has, but it has, it has effects. It has a result. And the second word, purity, if you will, deals with those side effects, the collateral damage of our wrong choices. Okay? It's, so it's like two sides of a coin. But it's the same blight, just different emphases. Now, I grew up in a church on Sunday nights where we would have a hymn service, a hymn singing service, and people would call out numbers, you know, 348 and 12, and, you know, and it happened at that time that the pastor's wife could play anything from memory. You know, she just didn't even have to turn the pages sometimes. She'd just start in. And I remember singing William Cowper's songs. Uh, his lyrics say, quote, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's going to happen in the future for Israel and for Judah, and it happens to us. Just come and receive that. Wash that away from us, Lord. In verse 2, the Lord pronounces a final judgment on idols and on false prophets. It says, And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that it will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. Now, the previous verse spoke of cleansing at a moral and a spiritual level at great depth. Okay? But the Lord of hosts moves on to begin to address the cleansing of the land. All the idols are to be purged from the land, and their names and the false powers that they portrayed will be forgotten. They'll be cut off as if they never existed. Likewise, the Lord turns on the false prophets and the unclean spirit that drives those false prophets to, to prophesy. Now, it's a fascinating snippet in Scripture that illustrates some of this. It's found in 1 Kings 22, and it's the story of King Ahab of Israel. Now, Israel at that time were the ten rebel, if you will, the ten departed uh, tribes who had moved away uh, politically and spiritually away from Judah. They established a different nation called Israel and the two tribes in the south were called Judah. They put their capital in Samaria and they, uh, Jeroboam erected a golden calf, one in Dan in the north and one at, at uh, Bethel in the south. And he, uh, he addressed his people and said, there, worship that. That's Yahweh your God. So here is King Ahab who is married to Jezebel, okay? And he's a, he's a piece of work, okay? And he invites King Jehoshaphat from Judah to come, and together they'll blend their armies, and they'll go and try and recover the land that was lost in battle to Aram, which is modern-day Syria. It's just to the northeast of, of Israel. And, um, and to, to do it properly, the King Ahab, King Ahab uh, inquires of his 400 prophets 
uh, how is the battle going to turn out? What is going to happen if I go up to fight? And all 400 of his prophets say, go up, take Ramoth Gilead, and you're going to prosper. And, and, uh, and it says, for the Lord Yahweh will give it into your hand. Now, these priests weren't worshiping Yahweh in any way, shape, or form, but they use his name in vain. Okay? <clears throat> and then King Jehoshaphat says, uh, excuse me, isn't there any prophet left in your land who worships God Most High? And King Ahab says, yes, there's one, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me. So Micaiah, the name of that prophet, is sent for, and on the way, this messenger is walking alongside him on the road, and the messenger is saying, look, here's what all 400 of the prophets of King Ahab have already said. And it goes like this. In unison, they said, go up and conquer, and it's, gonna be, it's all given to you. It's all good. And, and I suggest to you, Micaiah, that's what you say out of your mouth when you get to the king. So Micaiah arrives in front of Ahab. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go up and succeed. And the Lord will give you into, into the hand of the king. You know, the Lord's going to give you back all that land. Well, Ahab immediately recognized he was being punked. Okay? And he, he explodes all over Micaiah. And he says, you must, I charge you, you must tell nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh. This is a God he doesn't honor. He doesn't worship. You know, but he's somewhat afraid. Okay? And then so Micaiah opens his mouth and says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains. And the Lord said, they have no master. And let each of them return to their house in peace. The essence of Micaiah's prophecy from the Lord God is the absolute opposite of what he'd gotten from the 400 priests of Ahab. So I want to read you 1 Kings 22, verses, and we're going to get, we're getting, this sets the stage. This is, this is behind the scenes, okay, this perhaps happened even before, before this, okay? It just falls in this order in the text, okay? <clears throat> Um, verse 20, and the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall, meaning die, go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said, excuse me, and one said this while another said that. So, uh, you know, we don't understand who he's addressing here, okay? But there's, there's multiple, well, I don't know about this, I don't know about that. Okay, verse 21 says, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And the spirit said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And then the Lord said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all your prophets and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Um, Obviously, what stood there and volunteered to be that deceiving spirit was a demonic spirit, a fallen angel. Uh, None of God's angels could handle that vile stuff, so the Lord subcontracted it to one that was his very life, its very life, if you will. And it was to entice, to mislead, to deceive or to delude Ahab. 
and this demon directed a deceiving spirit into all those prophets. He entered into all those 400 prophets and they spoke what the, what the king wanted to hear. So um, Jehoshaphat gathers his army and Ahab gathers his army and they go to battle against Aram over this piece of land on the eastern slope of the Jordan. And in the clash of battle, the sound of sword on sword, shield on shield, the, the sound of, of war horses and screams and dying, and arrows are in the air, it says in the text that a random archer, just a man, an archer, single guy, uh, of Aram, he's a Syrian, he draws his bow and he can't miss. He's going to hit something out there. They're packed together. And he said, the text says he shot a random arrow and he strikes Ahab at the joint of his armor. And, and later that day, Ahab dies. He bleeds out. Now, the question is, what was it that that unclean spirit was after? The New Testament gives us the answer. It was to kill, to steal, and to destroy. So that's what his master, Satan, is all about. And it's by any means. One such spirit asked permission of the Lord God to deceive Ahab and his prophets, leading to defeat and death. Ahab would not listen to the prophet of the Lord, but chose to hear the false prophets that were filled and animated by that unclean spirit. Now, Zechariah 13, chapter, uh, verse 2, 13, 2, says that the false prophets and the unclean spirit will be removed from the land. So that's coming. That's future. Now, beginning in verses 3 to 6, uh, the Lord addresses the false prophets who will try to hide from the judgment of the Lord. It says this, And it will come about that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you, are, you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his mother and father who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also, I will, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed for his vision when he prophesies. And they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive he will say, I am not a prophet. No, I'm a tiller of the ground. For a man sold me <clears throat> as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will say, those are that which I, uh, I was wounded in the house of my friends. So in Deuteronomy chapter 13, uh, it speaks of false prophets and false worship. And how the Lord has set Israel, not himself, he sets Israel to be responsible for that in their midst. Okay, I'm going to read to you six verses here. So out, out of um, Deuteronomy 13, begin verse 6. It says, if your brother, your mother's son, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is, at your own, who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, Let's, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him 
to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So already Israel had a statute, if you will, that said if somebody even rises within your own family, it is family responsibility to say, that's not going to stand. The birth parents of the false prophet were first to testify against him, and the second was to lead in his execution. The Zechariah passage continued with those false prophets that were going to try and hide and deceive those who were around him that he had once been a false prophet. And it says they will lay aside the prophet's mantle. Now, the prophet's mantle in Israel was made out of hair. It wasn't woven cotton, which was not unknown at that time. It would have been flax or it would have been wool. In, in, but in the case of the prophets, it was a hairy robe. It was made out of animal hair. Okay? And he would lay that aside and, and dress differently. And even if somebody came up to him and said, I know you. Weren't, weren't you one of those prophets? And he would go, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm a farmer. You know, and I was, I was sold into slavery when I was just a kid. Okay. So the only truth that might be in that statement of his would be possibly that in his youth, he may have been sold into servitude as a slave to an unclean spirit. The passage continues with questions about the wounds and scars that appear on his torso that could be clearly seen. Okay? Now, you recall the confrontation between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. Elijah takes stones, builds an altar, takes wood, lays, the lays it for a fire, has a sacrifice, sacrifices the animal, lays the animal on top of that altar, and then pours gallons and gallons and gallons. You know, he, he drenches the sacrifice, the wood, the stone, and there's water running in a moat around the bottom of it. While the Baal prophets are dancing and shouting and shrieking and calling on Baal to light their sacrificial fire. They also had an altar and wood and, and a, an animal sacrifice. And they were calling on Baal to come light that fire. And in that process, in their frenzy, they cut themselves. And they were bleeding. Okay? Now, the, the frenzied rites of the worship of false gods by false prophets would, would have left wounds and scars. The Canaanite worship particularly had all kinds of forms of self-mutilation. Now, when the false prophet in Zechariah 13, 6 is asked about his scars, he lies. He says, oh, I got those at the house of my friend. So it's really clear that the false worship of idols and false prophets were, were evident in the history of Judah after their captivity in Babylon, and that continues to this day. Okay? That false stuff led by unclean spirit is still present today. The purge of the land lies in the future in, in Israel's history. Now, the final three verses here in Zechariah 13 turn messianic again. There's this shift in the middle away from what God is going to do to what Messiah is going to do or in God's relationship with Messiah. And this is poetry, but it's jarring poetry. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it will come about in, the, in all the land, declares the Lord. That two, parts in, in, two, excuse me, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, 
but the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is, as refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now here, the one who awakens the sword, who wields the sword, is the Lord God. And he, he does this against his shepherd and against the shepherd's, uh, you know, against his, my associate. Now, the Hebrew, you know, this is one of the ways to translate it, is my associate means someone who is ultimately close. I mean, close, close, and of equal power, equal identity. And so I'm sure that word, my associate, rocked people. Like, how could... How could the shepherd have, you know, and how could God come against his shepherd like that? Okay? And so in some senses, it ought to rock us as well. Yet it was Isaiah who said, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Okay, that's shepherd, servant, and associate. You know, at least in, in the Isaiah passages and here in, in Zechariah. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord will make his life, and though the Lord will make his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and proclaim his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So yes, the Jews had roared out, they had clamored, they they'd shrieked, crucify him. Okay, and it is to them that the guilt of piercing is laid. But in the background, behind the scene, the Lord God was the one who set that sword in motion. Knowing that resurrection and ascension and rule were laid out before his shepherd and his associate and his servant. And indeed, Israel was scattered, as were the followers of the way, if you will, the, the, the first believers in, in Christ. They were scattered as well. Another way to translate the, the phrase, um, I will turn my hand against the little ones, is, is really an acceptable translation of turning the hand toward the afflicted ones. And the Lord said, out of this will come one-third of the population that will survive, and two-thirds will be cut off. The remnant, the one-third, will be brought through the fire. They'll be unscathed, but refined and tested. So you got two verbs here, refined and tested. The refining process in the ancient Near East was where you took ore. You took gold ore, silver ore, copper ore, and you would pack it into a terracotta vessel. Don't know the shape. Don't know if any of that survived. Okay, But it was, it was a clay, a, a fired clay vessel, and then it was stoppered. It was sealed, and, and it was slid into this oven, and they would fire that oven as hot as they could make it. Uh, they would just... You know, they, they used whatever technology they had, bellows or, you know, it was, it was flaming. It was roaring for five days. And then they had to step back and wait for it to cool down and cool down and cool down. And then they could extract that vessel out of there and, and crack the lid off of it. And inside, all the dross, all the dirt, all the other parts of the ore that were of no value had vaporized. And it had um, accreted itself on the sidewalls. So it, it turned all that, a lot of other stuff into a gas, and, and the gas rose up in the vessel, and it, it, it coated the whole inside of that, 
of that uh, crucible, if you will, the covered crucible. But what was left in the bottom was pure gold, pure silver, pure copper. The Lord says, I am going to put you through the fire. And what will result will be purity. The second verb here is tested. And Job 23.10 says, but he, Lord God, knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. God's testing is not to punish but to produce purity and ability to serve in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> the bottom line on, of uh, being saved out of a remnant and put through the fire, put through the testing for God's pure, godly purity and ability is that those who do, or go through that, the one-third of the population, will cry out in the Lord's name and call on him, meaning his, his holy character and his loving promises and the Lord will answer them and say, they are my people. And the remnant will respond, the Lord is my God. All right, Forge family, let's understand that, that unclean spirits are not just those that deal with kings and high officials. They are empowered by Satan and welcomed by humans at the highest and at the very lowest uh, strata of, of humanity. You know, the full spectrum of humanity around the world. Now, one known factor about them, series of factors, is that these demons, they prompt unclean choices in morals. And so if you see someone who is just morally bereft, chances are they are, they are uh, uh, infested, if you will, <laughs> surrounded by that unclean spirit. Also, their personal cleanliness often will be compromised. You know, I've seen that in, in Africa, multiple times in Africa, and uh, in Southeast Asia, where someone in the marketplace, you, you walk by and you can't hardly, it, 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 it burns to open your eyes. Their smell, their filth, the filth that is on them. It's highly probable then that that individual or the group of them that went through all are controlled by that unclean spirit. And then thirdly, uh, they all are committed to dark practices and rites. Now, they also like to stay hidden. They like to stay invisible. They like people to say, oh, he's, a, he's crazy. He's mad. He is, he's a, you know, he has this, this other disease. It's when those dark entities are revealed in the light of Christ that their power over humanity and nature is broken. Uh, as to the trying by fire and testing, Paul uses the Greek words in the New Testament that uh, clearly point out that the Lord often puts his people through refining and testing, but for the purpose of being approved. That refining and testing may be a matter of hours, days, months, years. It may be, for some, it is a lifetime. Okay? Now, that, that testing... And that proving is designed, may be designed for now. The characteristics that the Lord brings out of you may be for now in the kingdom of God, or it may be for eternity as part of the rule and reign of Christ in his kingdom. So we need to learn to discern the difference between spiritual warfare 
and the Lord's ordained purification process. There are two different sources. One is to be confronted, and one is to be received accordingly. And lastly, um, give thanks for the Lord God who made a way where there seemed to be no way for mankind to be cleansed from sin and impurity. We are a blessed company of those who love and serve Jesus. Let that blessing shine. Let that purity flow out of you as you shop, you're in the marketplace, you're at home, you're a family, you're with extended family. You know, wherever you are, um, you, you are to wait on him and see how he's going to lead you to pour out that stuff and then wait on him to lead you in the way you are to go. Like Job, you will arrive as precious gold, ready to serve the king. Let's pray. Lord God, when you refine us and test us, it can feel like abandonment or warfare, but it is neither of those. You love us so much that you cannot move us forward in the kingdom without that refining and testing. Lord, please hold our hands and deliver us as pure and ready to serve you in the kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.